Welcome to Season 2, Episode 34 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben, joining me today is Dominic Christina. Dominique is a writer, poet, and activist. She joins me from her home in Denver. Welcome to the show, Dominique. Thank you so much for having me. You split your time between New York and Denver. Tell me about life in those two cities. Oh, um, New York is where the chaos gets to happen, and Denver is where peace (laughs) tries to happen. That's really what it is. You know, I, I think of New York is where I, I work and Denver is where I, as I told you, where I convalesce, where I put my head down on a pillow and try not to be academic at all. Um, both cities, like most cities everywhere on the planet have been overwhelmed by the pandemic and uh, trying to figure out who they are now in relationship to this new reality that we're all walking through, you know? Um, New York always sort of kept its aloofness. Um, That aloofness now is more acute, I think. Uh, It feels more lonely in some way, even though it's still so crowded. And Denver is pretending that a pandemic didn't happen and that, you know, we can just go back to our, you know, breweries and our mountain views and uh, without consequence. Um, So, yeah, that's (laughs) that's what life in those two cities are like. Yeah. And you grew up in Denver, didn't you? I did. Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a great city and and different from a lot of major cities in that, you know, it's, you can drive 30 minutes outside and feel from outside of Denver and feel like you've been dropped into some otherworldly place. You can look at dinosaur, you know, footprints in the rocks and, and all of that. So I love Colorado for that, that it, it, it gives me a lot, a lot of range of motion and a lot of like ways to consider the story. And as a writer and as a Gemini, I, I need I need all that room, you know? Oh <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Very cool. And so I suppose that Denver must be a really nice counterpoint to the busyness of New York then. It is, yeah, it is. It really, really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I need it, you know? I think um, New York though gives me material Uh, And again, that's just, that's the city, but it's also who I am and how I'm constructed. And, you know, there's so much human drama and just the, the nature of a city that is so big and so packed with people. None of them are really looking at each other. None of them are really interacting. You can be squeezed shoulder to shoulder with people on a train and not interact with them at all. It's a very dizzying thing, but as a writer, it gives you a lot. Okay. Or it gives me a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Before we start talking about books, I really have to ask you about the current state of America and the political climate at the moment, because I think it's 
really it's made heaps of news over here. There are protests here about Roe versus Wade and things like that. But I want to ask you how it is over there. The same. Uh, there's there's protests, chagrin, consternation, upset, outrage, betrayal, to the point of throwing people into psychosis. Uh, it's it's the maddening business of trying to defend an argument that you should not have to make. Uh, and again, it's not really a political conversation for me so much as it is the fundamental, like the fundamental root of it is that I, we are still organized around the idea that women's bodies need to be regulated and that we can't possibly be in control of ourselves. We have no body autonomy or that my bodily autonomy is somehow vanquished or, or compromised to the point of me not having a say the second that I become pregnant. And, and those conversations are less about pregnancy and babies and more about, again, the Old Testament thinking about women and our bodies and how best to regulate them. And we are often needing to be regulated because of whatever men are doing or however men are processing what our bodies are doing. That's when we need to be regulated. That's why you have to have specialized huts and housing for women when they're on their menses still in countries all over the planet. You know, these bleeding huts where women are sort of shuffled off to just because they're on their periods. There's, it's the same conversation for me. So yes, people are in the street, people are protesting and creating language to let you know, uh, to let government know um, how they feel. And I hope it matters. I, my heart still works. So I continue to believe in people, in the goodness of people and that it will matter. Um, but I also think we need to be more willful because I don't think that we're having these conversations in the right way. Cause we keep sort of cycling back to the same conclusion and so for me that always translates to we're not having the right conversations in the right ways and that's why we keep revisiting the same old traumas or the same old pedestrian tales you know what I mean yeah I think I do yeah yeah so America is privileged and entitled and unaware of itself in, in, in so many ways that's what I would say and Roe versus Wade just sussed out how dysfunctional we continue to be, you know? And I, my feeling a lot of times being here is that when those things happen, when there are these sort of these landmark events, they're seismic and everyone picks their head up for them. And we have a go at that, that consciousness, you know, like we're all sort of operating in a certain consciousness for maybe a couple of weeks. And then it's, it's on to the, the ball game or, the, you know, the next award show that's on or whatever. We're not willing to be outraged for very long is my point. You know, we're not willing to be inconvenienced by the fact of who we are for very long. We will quickly, you know, distract ourselves away from these things. And I'm really hoping that we won't do that with Roe versus Wade, but I, I don't know. I don't know yet. It seems such a strange divide because you have, I guess, all these conservative state governments in America, who seem to be, yeah. you know, pushing for different things. And then yeah. obviously you have more left-leaning states as well, and they're deciding their own path on this one. Yeah, it's true. But, you know, for me, uh, 
political conversations in this country have become problematic in a brand new way because the binary of uh, Republican or Democrat, left or right, um, where now the right is representative of those who wish to deny women bodily autonomy, but they care very much about making sure that newborns are, get to be newborns and that they're safe, but they don't care at all about gun control. Again, this is just sort of the sound bite that you get about these parties. And then on the left, you have that, you know, the radical left has the agenda of socialism and we're a democratic society and we should resist that with our might. And that the left doesn't care about the preservation of life that they, in their quest towards being sympathetic to feminism, they have ostensibly, you know, given women permission to be murderers of their own children. I mean, like the rabbit hole is deep in terms of the binary, right? Uh, choice that our government is constructed from. And to be honest with you, nothing I said is a truly fair assessment of either party. It's it's, it's very agenda-based always, politics always is. But fundamentally, we have just simply forgotten how to be human beings and how to just be decent to one another. We have forgotten that, that disagreement does not have to translate to bludgeoning or to a sharpshooter on the roof, you know? We, mm. We've lost that, that ability. We, we've, we now just seem to descend into chaos when we don't agree with one another. Uh, again, it's very Orwellian and terrible. And I'm hoping that enough of us are awake to it that rather than concede or acquiesce, we fight with all our might to be better and to be different and to create a culture that doesn't ask what the present one asks of us, you know? Yeah. Wow, okay. Let's move on to books because it's probably slightly less yeah. depressing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you've written four books of poetry, the most recent being Anarchist Speaks, and you've won awards for slam poetry. What drew you into the world of writing? Um, peer pressure and terrible pain. Um, I, I, I became a writer. In my mind, I became a writer when I was 22, my senior year of undergrad, which held for it just one special designation. And that is that my, the spring semester, I got to choose classes for myself. And those classes didn't have anything to do with when volleyball practice was or anything like that, because I was a volleyball player um, at a high level. So I, my whole life had been from the age of 11 to the age of 22 it was organized around that, me playing that sport and, and making sure that the hours in the day accommodated what I needed to um, give to the sport. Okay, spring semester of my senior year, that was not the case. I finally got to pick classes that weren't about organizing around when practice would be. And there was a professor on campus that I was drawn to for, the, for very strange reasons. I only saw him, you know, like lunchtime and things like that. There would be very brief interactions and coffee store lines, but he, coffee shop lines, but he walked around with tie-dye shirts, Birkenstock sandals and uncombed hair. And he was always profane and cussing people out in the lines and the, when he was getting his food. And I was like, he's a quirky character. I'm gonna take whatever class he's teaching this semester. That's literally <laughs> what I, it was just very, you know, 
it lacked it, it it lacked any real analysis and he was teaching creative writing so i entered this class thinking that i would you know i would come in here i'll i'll listen to the professor i'll learn what he has to teach i'll generate you know something that's original i'm i knew i was a solid writer uh and that'll be that i'll get a good grade he'll be charmed by me i'll graduate and we'll never see each other again but he um didn't <laughs> he didn't play along you know the idea that i had in my head he didn't play along so by the second poem i submitted in front of my peers and everybody he called me a liar and said that he didn't want to read any more poems from me if I was going to keep lying to him. And I was mortified and shamed. I was very ashamed because he was right. Like he, I mean, he was absolutely right about me. I was lying. I had been lying. I had been pretending uh, my whole life at that point in terms of what I showed the world was a performance. And I had been successfully fooling people for 22 years. I mean, I had never been challenged on it until then. And it changed the trajectory of my life. I mean, I mean that. I didn't know poetry was a place where I could tell the truth. And I was not just invited to do so. It was like an insistence. I was required to do so from this professor. I recognize and have recognized a thousand times over that that could have gone a whole other way, depending on if I had a professor who was just content to look at syntax and move along, but that's not what happened. He really wanted me to be honest and he loved poetry enough to hold me accountable. And that changed my life. So I became a poet then, the recognition that I could tell the truth, that this was gonna be this holy place, a holding place, a holy holding place, whereby whatever was shameful or terrible or violent or unresolved or whatever there was about me that, I, that felt unblessed, it had a home. It could be there and be safe there. And no one could hurt me with it. If I offered it poetry, then it couldn't harm me anymore. Now, this is just what I did with the experience of being introduced to poetry the way that I was. And so that is how I became a writer, a professor in undergrad in a creative writing class that I took whimsically. He insisted that I tell the truth, that I honor the craft. And then, you know, from there, I think, the relationship was one that I just worked really hard to own as my own. Um, I'm still doing that. And owning language is a big deal for me too. So, yeah. Did I answer your question? I spit out a lot. I should have told you that when you asked me a question, I'm probably going to answer it after I've taken you through a whole lot of other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to point that out. You have, you may have to keep me on track sometimes. It's more spin out a lot. It's more fun like that. The digressions are always the fun bit. <laughs> okay, good. Good, okay. <laughs> but I think with that, with that teacher, that's amazing. But in terms of honesty, like I don't think anybody would ever accuse you of dishonesty in your poetry now. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> no, no, no. But I was headed there. It yeah. had, had I not 
you know, I would have been headed there. Cause I really, I was loath to discuss parts of my life that for me felt like it meant that I was a flawed, a, a broken person in, in, in an irreparable way. And just because of it, the amount of violence and stuff that I navigated as a kid at, uh, at the hands of a stepfather. And I just thought, no one wants to see that. No one wants to know that. You, you, you're already horrible. So the least you can do is tuck that in and not make anyone, you know, not expose anyone to that. That's how I really was in the world. I showed up that way until poetry. And I don't do that at all anymore. And so the poetry really helped me be a better person too, a more honest person too. Yeah. Well, the themes you cover in your poetry are things like social rights and discrimination, feminism, but tell us a bit more about your background and some of the themes that inspire your writing. Sure. Um, so I, I'm 48 years old. I come from really remarkable people. I really do. My mother is remarkable. Um, she's a professor of English lit and languages and Africana studies. Um, she's multilingual. She's brilliant. She's an author as well. She uh, lived in Tanzania for a while to be fully immersed in African lit and languages. That's the template I inherited of woman. That's the template that I inherited that told me that how amazing and how brilliant and how supernatural women are. So that's why I'm like, people like, you know, talk to me about your feminism. I'm like, I don't know about that. I can just tell you that the only version of woman that I inherited was women being really strong and really brilliant and really beautiful and amazing. And so I just affirm that everywhere I go. I, my grandparents uh, knew each other when they were three years old and five years old. They were in each other's lives, literally their entire lives. They were married for more than 60 years before my grandmother passed away. Both of them were school teachers uh, in segregated schools in Little Rock, Arkansas, but my Aunt Carlotta, there was a flyer that went around on the west end of Little Rock asking families with high school age students if they had any interest whatsoever in their child attending uh, Central High School, which was an all white school in Little Rock, but it was one of the best schools in the country. Most people don't know that, you know, it's weird that it would be in Little Rock, Arkansas, but it really was. And my aunt said she wanted to participate in that social experiment. And so I share that because it's important for people to understand the context in which I was born and the context in which I grew was I was surrounded by giants, for real, giants in every way too. Like I, I'm six feet, my father is six eight, he played for the Chicago Bulls, my like giants, but then they're also the things that they've done in the world, uh, the demonstrations of bravery and brilliance. The ways in which my grandmother insisted on everyone in the family being in the service of their gifts, which is now the very thing that I try to do out here. I try to be in the service of my gifts, but I also really try to bring other people into that. Like I want people to be in their service, of, in the service of their gifts all the time. That's my background. Educators, activists, musicians. My grandmother was a, a music teacher. So vocal performance was a big deal for me. Uh, growing up and it was a minor for me in college. I couldn't major in it and play volleyball at the same time. A detail they left out while they were recruiting me and then they told me the very first day uh, orientation. Um, but 
I come from amazing folks who did amazing things. So the expectation was that I would be amazing. It's very straight. The line was very straight and, and, and really clear. Um, I don't know. What else should I tell you about my background? That was the question, wasn't it? My yeah. background? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So my grandfather played baseball before baseball was integrated. He played for a group. I mean, I'm sorry, a team called the Kansas City Monarchs. Uh, that team uh, went to their version of the, um, what would it be? The World Series. Uh, and my grandfather played with Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson, which are all, they're kind of legends in this country, baseball legends. And he's in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And when he left that team, Jackie Robinson took his position. And Jackie Robinson is the name that people know as having integrated baseball in this country. But my grandfather was his coach. And Jackie Robinson is my mother's godfather. So my mother's name is Jackie for him. I, I guess I'm telling you that to say, in terms of asking me about my background, I really did inherit extraordinary people. I borrow bone and blood from extraordinary people. So I've always known that I was supposed to be amazing. I have always known that. And I have tried really hard to be that. Unbelievable. What amazing people you come from. Truly. Yeah. Wow. So I just want to ask you some of the themes that you cover in your poetry and some of the things that inspire you for writing. You know, I usually just have a, an itch. I'm, something is always nudging and I just give it an audience. I never know what it is though. So I, I mean this, I, I, I sit down in front of the screen and I wait and something comes. A lot of times it's social commentary, which just means that my subconscious is working on my behalf. I'm moving through my day. I'm saying hi when I need to say hi, thank you, goodbye, no, yes. Uh, you know, I'm doing all of those things, all the things that, you know, sort of all the social contracts that we have. I do all that all day long, but my consciousness is processing other things. And then the writing is where I get to parse that stuff out a lot of times. Um, if I feel any big, if any big feeling from me will become a poem on, on any end of the spectrum. So if I'm terrified, if I'm shocked, if there's horror, if I'm rageful to the point of wanting to break things if i'm if i'm completely enamored and head over heels in love whatever it is if it's a big feeling from me it's a poem um but that's the only agenda that i have is to just give that thing that i'm holding in my body language you know a lot of times i don't know what i'm going to say till i've said it i am interested in having a human experience. I chose to take on a body. That's my philosophy. Uh, I just can't, I just don't believe that it was whimsical, but maybe it was, but I believe I chose this to take on a body because there were things that I needed to learn. I intend to get off this planet having learned them. Some of those things are painful and confronting. Um, my, and those are the things also that live in the writing for me, you know? I try to be willful about putting down the things, writing down the things that we are conditioned to hide. Yeah, or to feel ashamed of or embarrassed by. Those are the things that I, I, I wanna write them down. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. 
one of the things we were talking about before we started recording was the some of the new projects that you've got on the on the run. Um, and the project about your grandmother sounds fascinating. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. Uh, so as I told you, my, my grandmother was a music teacher for 40 years and it began in uh, the segregated South. And so while my aunt Carlotta was desegregating Central High School and get, being pummeled every day and spit on every day and hit with backpacks and all that, and food dumped on her and all that every day, my grandmother was still teaching music to black children in, at the time, uh, it was a church. Uh, and all of these kids, kindergarten through 12th grade, were all in the sanctuary and she taught them music and she formed boys choirs and all of that. And she kept everything, every program from every musical performance, every recital, pictures of every single kid she ever taught she kept it and there's a difference between it just in the eyes in the countenance of the children she taught when she was when they were being educated in a segregated environment and when they were being educated in an integrated environment and there was a lot of light that left after integration and I think that's because obviously, if you are pushing for something that <laughs> you're, you're, you're pushing to be proximal to a group that does not want you, that is fraught with a lot of pain and terror and horror. I mean, they don't want you, so they don't want you in their club. So they're gonna do whatever they can do to keep you out of the club. So those children look like, they looked like what they had been through in the photos after integration. They looked like they had been war walloped and none of that hurt was in the eyes before. So I'm just gonna show the pictures and, and I'm tentatively calling it lineage because my grandmother really was so willful about keeping every single image of all of these kiddos. And I just wanna honor that. I wanna honor her contribution. I want, and I want people to draw their own conclusions about even in, in terms of our activism and the things that we push for, all of that stuff, the symbolism and all of that, we want so we can feel like good people, whatever it is, there are usually bodies underneath that sentiment, or there's usually someone suffering in order for that symbol to become what it is, right? So my aunt was pummeled for a year. She got the Congressional Medal of Honor, but she still has permanent contusions on her back, you know? But no one talks about the contusions. We talk about the Congressional Medal of Honor because she did this really beautiful symbolic thing and she looks she has she now is representative of you know she's an agent of change she's someone who was willing to suffer and do all this stuff to make society better I love the symbolism and the poetry in that but we should still talk about the contusions you know what I'm saying yeah and so that that's what the exhibit would do would show yeah okay and the other piece of poetry the other book of poetry you're working on as well about your son yep blue boy um uh, he struggles with addiction. Um, he's, you know, the tw he's a twin. He and my daughter are twins, they're 21. Um, he's the most like me. Um, I often said that he is what I would have been like if I had been born a boy. I really understand this kid. I get him completely. Um, <clears throat> and his struggle 
is probably one of the most painful things I've ever walked through. Um, and I just had to, I had to address it. You know, like I said to you, I, big feelings become poems. This one took a long time because I, I want to be respectful. I want to honor how I feel. And at the same time, I want to honor him and where he is and, and not, I wanted to make sure that I didn't write anything that, that added any bruises that, that, or that felt violated in any way. I wanted him to feel seen, empathized with, understood, or, or at least the attempt to understand, you know, I, I didn't medicate my suffering with drugs, but that's because I, this, this is a very different society, you know, this one than the one that I was growing up in. I didn't have the options that he has, you know? If I had, I would've, I'm, I'm confident that I would've, you know? Cause I was definitely, when I was growing up, seeking a way around, you know, sort of feeling everything. I, I really, you know, um, and I think for him, it's, he had a, he has an innate attraction to, someone with a storied past because he grew up being raised by someone with a storied past. His mother, you know, had a storied past just because of my stepfather. And when he was the right age, he heard about some of the things I navigated in that house. My son would pick people, his best friends would be people who didn't have family, didn't have friends, they, they suffered. And he felt like, you know, life is for the living and you need to be proximal to people who are really living life, not the ones that are sheltered from it. And that gave him a lot of wounds. And then drugs gave him a way to medicate those wounds, you know? So the book is that it's, it's my consciousness is the first half of the book. His consciousness is the second half of the book. Um, and then the reckoning the sort of is just three poems long uh, where there's like this, the, the marriage between the two. You know, um, it's three poems long to end the book. I'm very proud of it. It's different from everything else that I've written. And I, and I know it's good, you know, I, I know it is, but I haven't shopped it or anything like that because it is a vulnerable piece. And so I'm taking my time about that, but yeah. And has your son read it? And how does yeah. he feel about it? Everyone, all of them have, the, the, all of my children have. Yeah. My mother too. Yeah, I mean, again, I, validating is the word you know it's validating it's a there's such a bruise i think in moving on the planet and feeling like there's no one who understands there's just people are reacting to what you do or what you say but they don't know why you said it or why you did it and they're not trying to know or they're not trying to understand that creates a lot of pain and wounding and so the effort to understand the attempt the, the movement toward this was a really bad day. Like you OD'd that day. And all I thought about in the proscript, the days that followed was how much it hurt me to see you like that. But an even handed consideration is how much it hurt you to go through that as well, mm. you know? So that's what I tried to do, yeah. Okay, wow, that sounds really powerful. I hope it will be. It has been for me. It was for me. Just the writing process alone was worth it. Yeah. Do you want to read us a piece of your work? Sure. 
I'm going to do song at the bottom of the boat. I heard that if you say drowning, you should mean it. Promise the wind what is left of your bones. Say bones. The erected totems pitched soundlessly in the dark wetlands of your body will want a proper burial. So promise a proper burial. Not premature or heavy, but thick and ceremonious like the way you laughed with friends you eventually buried. The ones whose names dangle from all unfinished poems say danger. And no, it is an unremarkable road, a howling place you ruined your dresses in. Say your grandmother's hands and watch your fledgling song lift out of the grave, an apparition of hymnals and unsuccessful curses. Say childhood and catch each devastation by the throat. Say stepfather until you do not need to say it anymore until it is a limp and needless word until it is one more thing to bury say memory and don't run from the meal eat what you can be full by morning say miracle and spend your flesh on it Pull the slow tendrils of girlishness from each padlocked room you made a home in. Pirouette the sun if you feel like it. Let the sky be what it is. Soft, persistent halo, ready to turn mistakes to hummingbirds. Say wings, say amen, say miracle, say possible, say stretch, say reach, say try, Say when, say I fell down, but I got up. Say I borrowed from the lineage of Lazarus. Say there are miracles only to be performed by me. Say the only thing that is relevant about any crucifixion is the resurrection after. Say I fairly sizzled with zeal and enthusiasm to do the things that can only be done by me. Say that, say this, say the body is the algebraic precision of prayer. Say God if it suits you and hear your own name echoed back. Do you remember what it felt like to be born? To suffer the body for the sake of a dance? Say dance then. Say never again or say forever and then plant your seeds. Bury your dead. Sing what songs you know, tell the earth how plural you are, how fertile the soil of your heart. Say heart, dear heart, red, red heart. Has there ever been anything that could keep you from being astonishing? Wow, that was so cool. Thank you. Amazing. Awesome. I love the way you, you, I don't know, I feel like that's just such a, it's almost an anthem. Like yeah, just, yeah, I think so too. Yeah. yeah, I do. It feels that way for me too. Because, you know, ultimately, like I said, it all comes down to one thing for me. Every poem, every TED Talk, every anything I've ever done, seen, uh, anything I've ever done, said, or, or performed, I'm, I will take you on a tour of the tragedy if 
at the end of it, I can show you in a more convincing way how astonishing I am that I'm alive, how unkillable I have been. Like that's the point of doing it. Otherwise I wouldn't do it because I'm not trying to be, I, I'm loath to even think that somebody would hear my story and think me a victim. That's not it for me. I'm telling you things to show you how unkillable I am. I'm telling you things so you can see, like I see, you can see the graves that I've crawled out of. I don't tell you the things so you can go, oh my God, you know, she has had such a horrible time. Poor thing. That's not my ministry. I'm astonished by me every day that I'm alive. And so the work for me should reflect that. Well, it's, it's, it's truly, it's like Lucille Clifton, you know, won't you celebrate with me? It's that sentiment. Every day that I stayed here, won't you celebrate with me? You know, that, that is a theme. You're right. It is thematic. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Let's talk about some of your gateway books. What were some of the books that were really important to you growing up as a writer? Oh, growing up. Okay. Well, let's see. So let me try to answer it this way. My mother, because she was a teacher, uh, she's a professor now. She was a classroom teacher, high school. She was introducing me to the likes of Emily Dickinson, Zora Neale Hurston, Langston Hughes, Edgar Allan Poe, Sylvia Plath. Before I was even in double digits, in I was, I, you know, I had shake, I had whole volumes of things memorized. I had The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe memorized before I even entered middle school, before I was even 12 years old. I, the language was beautiful to me. I didn't know what the hell he was talking about, but it sounded like it belonged to me. It sounded broody and heavy and nuanced and full of secrets. And it sounded like it belongs to me. So all of those authors, I read voraciously because of their use of language. Okay. And because my mom literally put a book in my hand or, you know, recited a speech and then I was hooked. Um, I remember, I remember Beloved, the, the novel Beloved changing my whole life when I was 17, almost 18. My mother had to kind of help me through it. It's, it's a tough read by Toni Morrison, but it changed my life. Um, it also, I'm clear now as a writer, showed me that just like Edgar Allan Poe, that ghosts in, indeed do speak, can speak, and that you can give them, you know, an audience, you can do that. You can, you can go ahead and let them have a lot of, take up a lot of space in your work. I, I love having permission for that because there's a lot of ghosts that I kind of deal with. I remember reading, I remember Hamlet's madness feeling validating. I don't know how that sounds, but I remember it being validating. I remember Langston Hughes' I Too Sing America being validating because I always felt like an other in every room, no matter whether it was a, a room full of melanated folks or not. I've all, I don't belong neatly in any room. My whole life you know, has sort of felt like that. So works that sort of showed me that I wasn't the only one having that experience always <clears throat> were things that I was drawn to. Poets that, that, that changed me either as a person or as my approach to writing. Lee Young Lee did, um, Twa Derricotte did, um, 
Sylvia Plath did. Oh, let's see. Saul Williams, more perform performance, known more for his performance than anything else in this country anyway. Um, Saul Williams did and does. Edwidge Dantecott, who is not a poet, she's a novelist, a Haitian one. Um, her approach to language does that, does something for me as well. I need to interact with works, no matter the genre, or writers who are taking risks uh, either with language or with content. I need to, to interact with folks who are, are willing to let me feel bad all the way through the end, if that makes any sense. You're not gonna tie it up in a neat bow for me and fix it because that's not reality. Um, I need the writers who are doing that work mostly because it permissions me in the work that I'm trying to do. Would you want to talk about the books you're currently reading? Oh, okay. Well, I'm rereading a, a book called The Corner and it's by David Simon. Uh, he's, it's co-authored actually. And the, it, it really is a kind of an American novel because The Corner refers to um, a section in Baltimore where David Simon was initially a journalist. David Simon is responsible for uh, writing the show, The Wire, which maybe you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, in Australia, you guys know about The Wire? Okay. Yeah. So because that's such a, it's such a Baltimore, I mean, the city is as much a character as anyone else. Baltimore in terms of an American city is very unique. It distinguishes itself in a lot of ways. Some, not all the ways are great, okay, or are laudable. But David Simon is brilliant at just being in an environment, not interrupting it or changing it in any way, folding into it in such a way where he gets to then just witness people being their true selves, even if that true self is horrible, the ways in which people interact with each other on the street, on the corner. Um, his just giving us sort of just the, how human these interactions are. They help me so much as a writer. The nuance that he offers, the texture, again, the empathetic consideration of a person who, if you were just passing them to try to get by them on your way inside the check cashing place or on your way to the bodega, this is a person you would want to not pay attention to. This is someone you would work really hard to avoid. And those are the people that David Simon brings right into the center of the room and he makes them available to you and human to you and real for you. And then it's almost, it's impossible to ignore them after that. That's what I'm reading. It's called The Corner. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Dominic Christina. Are you sick of the NRA? Do you think they wield too much power? Why not support the right to arm bears? Go to change.org and sign the petition today. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Dominique's Top 10. Top 10 books. Okay, okay, okay. 100 Years of Solitude. 
Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Beloved, Toni Morrison, Mama Day by Gloria Naylor. Okay, Into Sake Shange, um, for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. I probably would say Their Eyes Are Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. I probably would, yeah. Um, I probably would put Dry White Season in there, which is a book by a South African author and activist. Um, that, uh, Andre Brink. Um, Richard Bach Illusions is probably in my top 10 because I just, re I revisit the hell out of that book. Um, but I mean, and then in, in like contemporary novel stuff, I mean, I, the book Beautiful Boy by David Sheff obviously is a, is a dope reference to have when you're writing about your own son and his addiction and, and how you feel. Um, top 10, it's tough. It's a oh, tough Kendrick, challenge. Kindred for sure by um, Octavia Butler. I would probably put that there as well. I, I just, it's hard for me. Top 10, it, that's a hard. That's hard for me because it also is like, I mean, some books are always there no matter what. And those are the ones that I named, but I, that's just really tough for me to sort of narrow, narrow things down. But I definitely did name things for you that once I read them, I was not the same person. Yeah. That's sort of the litmus for me. I just wasn't, I couldn't be the same after that. Things changed about me. My lexicon had to change because of what I read or my positioning on the planet or my consideration of the world or a niche or anything, but some, something major happened after I read it. Um, that's usually what gets me to say it's in, a, in that category. You know, I, I felt changed on a cellular level and I did by all the books that I, I named, so. Yeah. Wow, okay, amazing. Well, we should probably wrap it up, but before we do, do you wanna tell us where we can go and find you online, where we can get in touch with you and where we can read your poetry? Sure, uh, yeah, I'm very findable. Um, DominiqueChristina.com is the website, D-O-M-I-N-I-Q-U-E-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-A.com. Um, there are um, videos on there of poems. Uh, you can buy books anywhere, anywhere. They're available everywhere. Um, Amazon carries all of them. Uh, all the major bookstores do. Um, you can also reach out to me on my website that I gave you, Dominique Christina, and order a book and I can autograph it if that's what you want to do. Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook, but not really. I'm on Facebook more as a voyeur than anything. I don't really post anymore. I'm so, uh, and I'm on Instagram. And yeah, did I, did I answer that? Yeah, absolutely. And Dr. at Gmail, yeah, is my email address if people want to get in touch. Brilliant. Okay, well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks once again to Dominic Christina. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod, and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back with the next episode next week.